Welcome to Biteside. I almost felt like I took myself by surprise just then. Um, I was trying to think of a way to like sing an intro, but I couldn't think of anything. So I just had to go quick, just hurry up and say it. <laughs> this is your mostly weekly show about tech, digital life, games, culture, all that jazz. Joining me, as always, Nick Healy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very, very well. A little terrified that you wanted us to be uh, Jerome Flynn, and who else was he in a band with? Do you remember Jerome Flynn? Uh, I Flynn, don't. Bron from Game of Thrones. He, oh, my Lord. Robson and Flynn. They were in a band together. There yeah. we go. So that's why we don't sing <laughs> oh, the intro. Oh, no, Robson. That's right. Yeah. I was thinking of Capaldi. I think no. he was in a band with someone else. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this has gone very well. Um, no, I'm excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good. And so, yes, clearly very busy past week. I know I was kind of off gallivanting around Melbourne for a chunk of it um, as part of other events and you were busy yourself. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, let's just dive in, right? I know that it's funny. Last week, if we'd managed to catch up, I would have been talking about the Australian Open fortnight event coming back for a second year. Um, I also had kind of secret knowledge about other news that would have had to wait to this Ooh. week. So we just get to talk about it all at once. Um, so all sorts of esports news and all of it essentially revolves around the idea that Melbourne is doing to esports what it has loved doing to traditional sports and that is say we are the home of it we will own it all bring it to us gravity will bring tourists to our city to come and enjoy all of the sports how wild is this like it is so forward looking for an australian city it is almost hard to conceive it really is and look i think it really ties in with the fact that melbourne and victoria have already been well on top of the idea that they want to be the hub for for gaming businesses mm. you know so so many of australia's biggest game developers are based there in melbourne uh they've done a lot to sort of promote that you know when pax australia came to town what is now you know what like seven years ago or something like that 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 was something that they wanted and that they really sort of worked to own and support in different ways. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, it does seem like for that Melbourne mentality and just, I guess, for like, I really appreciate that it is that progressive position of just saying, yes, esport is the same as sport when it comes to fandom and people being willing to kind of travel and get together to get in a stadium and shout desperately loudly for their favorite team. And so, yeah, so off the back of, you know, knowing that they already owned PAX, that they had already created a few years ago, the Melbourne Esports Open, and that played host to two of the big grand finals of the year, right? So the uh, Overwatch Contenders League Australian final, uh, and then also the League of Legends Oceanic Pro League final. Uh, all those sorts of events meant it became this real kind of cool tentpole. And so that's already run for two years. And so this is its third year. And so the huge announcement just today is that Intel Extreme Masters is moving after spending three years at Qdos Arena in Sydney, it is moving down to be the new headline event for the Melbourne Esports Open. And that is just a huge loss for Sydney fans as well. Having that one thing where it's like, well, we have <laughs> the Intel Extreme Masters. And now it's like, no, no, you don't. No, because clearly 
Um, you know, and I haven't, this is pure speculation on my part. I've heard lots of kind of different stories from behind the scenes, but nobody has really slagged off Sydney or New South Wales so much as they have very, very much talked about how Melbourne and Victoria have been massively supportive and really, really wanted to have this stuff in their city. Do we know, like, have we got some sense whether money has been involved in all these decisions or is it just literally we have the facilities, we have the interest, we have the record, come down, let's make this work? I, I would say there's some, there's some money involved. Like maybe it's, you know, or it might be that an amount of money that isn't involved for the organisers, you know. So it might be that kind of stuff where I'm not sure who controls Melbourne Park, which is where all these events happen, um, you know, whether they are still sort of state government owned and they can essentially say, here, we're going to lease it to you for this event at a wonderfully discount rate. You know, those kinds of things might be part of it, but it might be that there's sort of money behind it. I mean, again, that even might just be that they will integrate it into, you know, state, tourism support material and promotions and things like that um, to really sort of drum up that business to come to it. I know that, you know, when you look at it's funny, I was actually helping. Uh, so I wrote a story about this for Esports Observer overnight. And when I was looking for photos to go with it, uh, I noticed that, you know, the IEM stage in Sydney, uh, you know, any of the kind of sponsorship info around it is just the kind of traditional brands that would be involved with these sorts of things. Whereas at Melbourne Esports Open, like Melbourne and sort of, you know, those kinds of visit Victoria type messages were right there on the stage. Melbourne kind of clearly sees that having our name attached to these big events is great for the city. It's great for that sense that we are the place where major esports events happen in Australia. So, you know, how much direct money is exchanging hands, I'm not sure, but there is a lot of support at the very least. But how wild is this? While, while so many places are still trying to contend with the idea of what, what do you mean? People want to watch games. Are you, are, <laughs> yes. are you serious? Melbourne hasn't just worked that part out, but they've actually said, and they'll travel to do it, and they'll spend money while they're here. I mean, it, it is wild. It is absolutely wild when we see how badly the games industry in general has been treated by many other states. 100%. I mean, it keeps being this weird thing of people thinking of it as, um, you know, a thing that kids do and it's a distraction. And, you know, and of course, in that same breath, they would talk about the value of sport for kids and all that jazz. And, yes, there's a whole different sort of physical level of activity involved but exactly that stepping up to the business side of the story, to thinking about, oh, these are businesses that can drive tourism dollars. And if we support game developers, they are major export businesses when they're doing well and they bring money into the country through the sale of their games. <laughs> like all of this really sensible business talk. I mean, it's funny, right? Like, Australian Financial Review is one of the main places here in Australia that I write about what's going on in esports and video games because as a newspaper and in their tech section, they completely see that there is a wonderful story to help inform business leaders about what's going on. And yet in sort of the other pages that are just for general audiences, those editors are like, mm, I don't know, do people really want to read about that? Yeah, they're interested. Ah, oh, wow. And look, we haven't even talked about merch. We haven't talked about any of the stuff that goes with this that has been capitalised on by most other sporting codes. Yeah. And look, I, 
you know, when I was down at the Fortnite event that was attached to the Australian Open, you know, and that is entirely organized by Tennis Australia. I think, you know, Epic Games and Fortnite helps to kind of support a lot of stuff around it, but Tennis Australia runs that thing. And talking to their event organizer, because I sort of said, look, it's one thing when they dipped their toe last year. It's another thing when they do it again. It clearly shows that they saw value to keep doing it. And like they increased the prize pool to $400,000 this year, you know, up from last year where it was 250 grand, something like that. So yeah, they really clearly saw potential and yeah, talking to their event organizer, he was just like, well, yeah, this is a whole demographic people who would never walk into the tennis precinct. If there wasn't something like this here, they see it as a perfect fit alongside throwing concerts every night of the, you know, of the Australian Open calendar so that it's all about creating that buzz, having people hanging out. There's all the food trucks and everything kind of there. And they said, yeah, on that last two days, when it is then just focused down on the couple of, you know, grand finals of the whole tournament, he was saying it's amazing to have lots more people wandering around the park and even for the people who already had their tickets to go to the final, there's that extra buzz as they're arriving and there's just heaps more people around because there's this extra event that is bringing in, you know, another few thousand people. What was the vibe while you were there? I mean, were people really into it? Was there a bit of confusion by some people about why there was even an AO fortnight? <laughs> I, you definitely see... Um, one of the, yeah, one of the big things you would see was parents who brought their kids along <laughs> because they wanted to see the Fortnite stuff. They've obviously had to buy a ticket too, which works well for Australian <laughs> Open. Um, but they walk into that stadium, um, and you literally, for some of them, you see this sort of aha moment where, you know, they've had a kid nagging them about how much they love Fortnite at home. And then they walk into this room where there's thousands of other people there to watch Fortnite. And there's this, you know, hundred, PC station stage in the middle of the tennis court space, you know, with giant screens above it and like live commentary and all the kind of, you know, all the bells and whistles, something like, oh, this is, this is real. And, you know, I think Brezzo, I'm not sure how old he was, the kid that won um, that, you know, the, the pro final this year, um, but he won a hundred thousand dollars and he looked like I, I, peg him at about 16 years old amazing um, you know and you just sort of look at and he was actually the first winner of any major event anywhere in the world for Fortnite who actually played on a controller which was quite cool um as well so you know uh, handing it to the pc kids but yeah there was just so much around it where i think yeah like there's a little bit of that vibe where some people might be wondering what's going on i, th- I think the biggest thing actually which is a problem for it is purely that because it's a hundred pcs they have to conduct it in the round um you know so that there's you know you can sit anywhere and sort of see a chunk of the people who are playing um but it does mean that it looks like it's not very full in terms of the stadium oh that but you're talking sense. about yeah. a stadium that could probably hold you know 10, 15,000 people. I'm not sure I'm guessing. Um, but yeah, I, let's say there's, you know, two or 3,000 people in, in an arena that could hold 10,000. It, it just kind of looks empty in a way that for any other esport final, uh, you know, they can, they sort of know roughly how many people are going to come and they're able to do that thing with a stadium where they position the stage based on, you know, setting up the curtains so that it's kind of the right numbers. And, it, and then that density of the crowd is parked in one section. And so it looks super full, but you know, there was a, 
big crowd there. And I think one of the really interesting parts is a lot of them are actually there to really cheer on their favorite YouTubers and Twitch streamers, you know, and a lot of them are actually there to support like the Aussies. So, you know, there was a whole bunch of international stars there this year. That was kind of a shift from last year. I think 50 overseas, 40 local. And it was quite cool that, you know, that uh, locals were actually the top few places on that, uh, on that chart. But um, I think, yeah, it was quite cool to see that some of them are there because they love watching pro Fortnite, I guess. But I think a lot more of them were there because they wanted to see their favorite streamers and YouTubers in the flesh and get them to sign stuff and all that kind of thing. That seemed to be where the biggest buzz uh, was attached. It's an interesting one. I'm going to throw myself back 15 years to when I was editing Formula One magazine. We used to talk about the two types of fans. There were the people who would follow the particular car manufacturers. Whoever was on their team, they were a Ferrari supporter, or back in the day, they were a Jag supporter. And then you had people who'd follow the drivers. Whoever the driver was signed to, well, that's who they were a supporter of now. Yeah. And then Right in the back, this tiny, tiny percentage was the people who'd follow the pit crews and the mechanics. That that was the thing they found really interesting. (laughs) Very tiny subset of the actual fandom. But I can see that that would be a similar thing. There's people who just want to watch this game being played. But then, you know, we kind of sociologically and psychologically, I guess, to a certain degree, we have a better connection with the people who are these esports stars than we have with any other sporting person because many of them have made their name, their personality, uh, their fandom by being an individual on that streaming bit, YouTube or wherever. Um, it's not surprising to see that not cult of personality is probably not exactly what I want to say because that's always got a sinister (laughs) overtone. I don't mean it that way. But that real personality-driven fandom. Yeah, and you you can often actually see there's a bit of a tension there between, you know, someone who decides, you know what, I'm going to try to be the best player in the world. That doesn't necessarily translate to them being the most interesting person to watch on a stream. And so a lot of them, you know, there's a, a different group and the group that probably makes the most money these days honestly is the group who says well i'm going to be really good but i also know i need to kind of have that ability to kind of chat to do funny stuff to not always strive to win around but instead to kind of go for the you know go for the big play to entertain the people who are watching and you know, I have chatted to some of those pros about the difference between when they're sort of truly scrimming to practice for a major tournament versus when they are playing in a way that is about being fun and entertaining during a stream and that they are two different things. I've got to say, you make it sound more like stock car racing when you put it that way, like NASCAR rather than Formula One, and I'm in. I yeah. love it. <laughs> Uh, moving on, just to talk about sort of the other great spectator sport of all time, movies, and more particularly yes. Oscars, did you watch at the start of the week? I I did, actually. You know, that's one of the luxuries of working from home is I could have it on in the background, get stuff done. Now and then you go, oh, okay, there's one of the funny bits. So I'm going to watch these people being funny rather than, uh, you know, worry too much about every single award along the way. How many of the films that were nominated had you seen? Because I'm just going to come straight out and say it. I'd only say one. I'd only got around to seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that was it. 
Look, I I'm not sure I saw any of this. <laughs> and man, I look, I used to my I learned how to develop websites by writing my own code to run an online Oscars tipping competition back <laughs> at the very end of the nineties. So yeah, I used to like totally go hard watching all the Oscars stuff. Loved it. And yeah, it's just, you know, life, right? Getting to the cinema, all that jazz. But I am super, like, I've been keen for a couple of weeks to catch up on Parasite. In particular, now that it's swept the pool, um, I really know I need to sit down and watch it in the next couple of days. Um, but, you know, it's still kind of interesting to watch what's going on, to see all those, you know, all the drama around the fact that, you know, plenty of uh, worthy directors were overlooked and all that kind of stuff. It's... It, it it is one of the better parts of celebrity culture that I find <laughs> interesting to watch. Yeah, you know, as I'm driving past, slowing down. <laughs> so you, you make a really interesting point here, and I've got to say, as an ex film reviewer myself, um, someone who used to edit MTV Screen Magazine, I'm always stunned how little I get out to the cinema now. But two of the big films, two of the big films that are up for a lot of Oscars, you and I could have watched in the comfort of our own lounge room because they were, of course, Netflix films. Yeah. And I still didn't. And you still didn't. That's really true. Well, I mean, we talked about The Irishman end of last year and <laughs> sure. I still never got around to watching it. <laughs> I never got around to watching Marriage Story. And it's just very interesting to me that, you know, we, we often use that excuse of, oh, it's so hard to get out to the cinema. But are we changing viewing habits based on what's being offered in the most snackable format by these, you know, uh, streaming companies. And and I guess the other one I wanted to talk about a bit is, do we want quality from our streaming media? You know, you and I grew up in the age of the great B movies, the kind of really random rubbish that you'd pick up a dollar for 10 movies and take home on VHS. And, you know, that was what, how you saw Tremors or Cast a Deadly Spell or something with Casper Van Diem in space or something like that. Seven VHS for $7 for a week at my local. That used to be such a winner. You'd just go around and grab a fistful of movies and know, I'll get through these by the next week. Well, isn't that what we maybe want from streaming media and not Oscar bait? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think this really does feed into this whole issue at the moment of back catalogue problems, you know, that there's a lot missing from the back catalogues and that feeling of being able to just kind of flick on some thing that, but, you know, like, I mean, even wish listing, right? I know that I have a whole bunch of stuff that has been sitting on that list of here's things I'm planning on watching. And in its own way, that list has become a dumping ground for novelty. <laughs> and then I, I just keep going to the, anyway, I'll just keep looking through the lists of what's new to put into that bin <laughs> of things I might watch one day. <laughs> but I'm exactly the same. I, I'm like, Oh, there's this. I could be watching Scorsese. And, oh, hang on. Titan season two. Yes. I'll just sit here for five <laughs> episodes of Titan season two. It's not even that I don't have the time necessarily. I don't have the wherewithal. And this has translated a little bit to what I actually go and see in the cinema. I did while I was in Sydney, go and catch Birds of Prey. It is a fun film. It is in no way a, a masterpiece, but it is a really enjoyable film. And you'd have to put a gun to my head to make me go see 1917, even though it's the kind of film I think I would genuinely enjoy. And that's really interesting to me to, to find myself deliberately taking myself away from entertainment that could be challenging to just find the stuff mm. that I'm going to find calming. Yeah, look, I mean, that's a really good point. And 
it's funny. It, it instantly actually made me think of the whole digital Sabbath thing that we've started doing here in the house. I think we oh, might hello. have talked about no, it. No, I don't think we have. Oh. So, yeah, so over the holidays, um, you know, the kids, like our whole house, we basically decided, you know what, let's start doing this thing where from Friday evening until Saturday evening, we just don't look at screens. Amazing. At all. And it's funny, like last Friday, I even sort of found, you know, I was racing to try to finish something off um, before we sort of headed out for dinner on Friday night. And I knew that would be like, okay, I can't touch this again until Saturday night at the earliest. And and all this tension that I'm like, oh, I need to, this is really important. I need to deal with this right now. As soon as I walked out the door and even realizing I hadn't quite finished it, that was just like, oh, it's a release because I am I know I'm not allowed to run back and touch the screen. <laughs> and, I mean, it's entirely, of course, I'm a, I can do what I like. I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, But sure. giving myself that sort of rule has been lovely for letting myself slow down. And in a sense, yeah, I almost wonder, is there a way to kind of give ourselves that rule to say, you know what, on a Wednesday night, I'm going to watch the slow movie and I'm going to, like, give myself that thing to say – because I know, you know, like we've been catching up on sex education and the feeling about that, of course, is you go, oh, like, you know, 45 minutes-ish for an episode. It's a comfortable thing to know it's going to finish relatively quickly. And, of course, we always end up watching two, maybe three, same length as a movie. Sure. <laughs> but in the moment, you sort of think it's an easy commitment. And so I'll make that commitment and then, yeah, Maybe there's that thing to say, you know what, like there's some other moment where I'm going to pick out that time to say we're going to do the slow movie day now and then just to kind of make sure we're fitting in those deeper experiences. Look, I think uh, related to this is the fact that the the TV I've been watching over the last few months that I've enjoyed the most has been the stuff I couldn't binge. I mean, my love affair with Watchmen has been well and truly documented here, but having that week to week was wonderful, and I'm finding that now with The Outsider. Uh, a huge Stephen King fan. I think this is an amazing adaptation of it. Ben Mendelsohn's wonderful in it, but I am loving having to wait a week to see it. Yeah. And, like, it's it's so funny, isn't it? There's so many of these elements of streaming services kind of bringing that back because, of course, you know, Netflix, with when it's been dropping a season of one of its shows, it just drops it. It, it really encourages that idea of binging. Uh, but I know I'm not sure sort of what service Outsider is on. I know um, I'm watching it on Foxtel, so it right. is coming through. Yeah, week to week. Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, but I think on Stan, a lot of their series do come one week at a time, and it is something that you know. And I mean, even if you're creating the show, knowing that it's not going to auto roll into the next episode when you first make it, you can play with those points of tension a little bit more as well. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's, though it's funny because I'm thinking now back to Mandalorian where there was slow moments during that series where there was that feeling like, is this really going to work out all that well? I'm not sure. And then by the end it was like, that was great. And if I'd binged it, I would have probably loved the whole thing. Um, so yeah, there's <laughs> so much tension in how do you plan this stuff? Um, but I'm glad that they are. Have you heard of, Kibi, Queeby, it just comes up as part of this discussion. It kind of rings a bell. So oh. it's it's being headed up by uh, Meg Whitman, who was former head of Hewlett-Packard, I think. Mm. And it is about basically being a snackable but proper kind of production values, TV-style serialised programming 
outlet. So I don't know much about it, but it just leaps to mind because um, I think it's even aiming to be viewable in sort of, you know, in like portrait or landscape formats. Like they're doing all this weird stuff to really embrace that idea of, well, watch our five or 10 minute episodes while you're on your commute or whatever it might be. But from the first few previews, and I, I'm completely talking, you know, off the cuff here because I, I don't remember digging into it that much, but I've heard that people have been really pleasantly surprised by the initial little teasers that they've been putting out about the kinds of stuff we're going to see. I'm keen. You are, I don't know, what you're describing to me is actually really hard to imagine, so I'm kind of really curious to see where they go with it. Yeah. I mean, part of me is like, "Mm, will that work? But I do like that it seems like there's some significant investors trying to make a very new thought on what does it mean to create online content and, you know, it's not just about YouTube channels and things, but it's about going, hey, let's merge somewhere between, you know, cute YouTube stuff and high production Netflix stuff. And let's see if there's a, a meeting in the middle there somewhere. So, I mean, yeah, just keep an eye out for it. Uh, I'll try to keep my eye out for it even better than I have so far, because it definitely <laughs> feels like it's going to be a really interesting part of this discussion. Look, I did want to maybe talk about uh, the Joker movie and, of course, some um, toxic fandom. But Honestly, we have spoken so much about toxic fandom that I almost have PTSD from it, and I would like to leave that conversation for next time that another yeah. movie comes up that everyone needs to rave at you about or tell you you're wrong about. And let's be honest, it's probably going to be Birds of Prey, but I'm out of here with that one. <laughs> no, over to you. Cool. Well, yeah, look, so I just – this is really a quick point, but I think it's an important one. There's been a whole bunch of stories in recent months and I just wanted to sort of flag it as something people should probably just start paying a little bit more attention to. And that is, um, you know, when we're having all these arguments about how Facebook, how, uh, you know, Google, how all the different sort of social media outlets are managing content, what they're censoring, what they're not, how they're sort of approving things, particularly there's so much of the political stuff that kind of is fraught over what they do or don't say yes or no to. Um, but a really massive issue that's coming out of the content moderation teams that work for all the social media companies is that they're starting to have serious PTSD issues because the things that they are seeing and having to, you know, remove, it's like this is the team of people on that front line. And of course, they're removing an awful lot of stuff that we don't ever have to look at thanks to the work they're doing. And that there is a lot of this stuff that can't fully be automated by AI yet, maybe ever. It's really, really tricky when you start to think about the fact that some of these companies are actually really sort of trying to downplay it. And even to the point where they're trying to really kind of shove the responsibility for looking after these employees off to sort of the sidelines. It's it's kind of really inappropriate. It is really inappropriate. And it's something that I think, you know, has been touched on a little bit, the concern of the people who do have to do this. And we've, I think we've heard in the past a few horror stories from the likes of Facebook about what people have had to be reading, what people have had to flag, what people have had to go over with a fine tooth comb. I, you, you touched on AI and it's always interesting to me about whether we would want AI to be taking over something like this, whether we would trust AI. Exactly. And, you know, I think, I think the way it's currently working 
you know, if if these people were being looked after well, there is, and if there were enough of them being employed and they were being paid appropriately for doing <laughs> some of the most difficult work on the internet, um, there pro- it probably sits in kind of a good balanced space right now where you know, no doubt there are some AI involved with flagging things, and then it's being double checked by a human to see is this thing what the AI thought it was, you know, or, you know, of course there's all the flagging systems where users can say that is not appropriate. And, you know, and then it comes into, you know, a giant bucket where these people have to check it. Um, the really big issues right now really seems to sort of tie into the fact that, you know, uh, the latest story I saw, which kind of brought this onto our list was YouTube has basically been saying, well, we're just going to get contractors to sign documents saying that they know that this work might cause PTSD. And you're like, does that somehow absolve them of responsibility for giving these people high-quality counselling and appropriate leave entitlements and breaks and all these kinds of issues? Because then the more and more people have looked into it, and I have to say the best reporter on this stuff that I can think of, Casey Newton, you know, a former colleague of ours in the yes. CNET days, but he is at The Verge these days and does a great daily newsletter called The Interface, I think it is, which is all about, what's going on inside the business of social media companies um, and a lot of the big Silicon Valley companies. Um, but yeah, he's ended up getting like a lot of great comments from people, you know, breaking their contracts to talk to him, to talk about how these subcontracted companies that they work for, you know, are like literally making them time their toilet breaks and, you know, and, if they are not getting through, you know, X number of moderations per hour, then there's something wrong. You know, then they're doing something wrong. All these kinds of things where it's really sort of this, it's being treated like they're just checking somebody's inbox, you know, as some kind of personal assistant when actually they're looking at some awful, awful things, but are not being given appropriate breaks and like all those things I was just saying before. And this is the stuff where you go, these companies are making billions. The least they could do is start to actually invest in looking after some of the people who are doing the most important jobs on their networks, which is keeping it safe. Yeah, I think the issue here is that we we often think of content moderation as um I don't know something you could get a whole bunch of monkeys doing, and and maybe the time right. is that we actually start assuming it is a really skilled job, and we train people accordingly. We, we give it the, the right level of regard and, as you said, the right level of support. Now, content moderation, it's a nuanced thing. I mean, you know, you do it wrong and you don't just let things go through that should never be seen or that are really problematic. You can actually slap a content moderation ban hammer down on things that were actually essential information and go completely the wrong way. Uh, this is a really yeah, big completely. deal. Not just what you have to see could be giving you PTSD, the strain of knowing that you are having a massive impact on the information that is going to be reaching people, I, I just can't even imagine that. Yeah. And I think for some of them, it's, you know, it's even some of those points of, te- of like ethical tension when they're sitting there thinking, I don't, I don't think this should be on the internet, but they're being told, well, the rule says that that one is on the correct side of that gray area. So you have to leave it there. You know, and those kinds of things. You're like, this isn't just like there's so much emotional weight attached to it. You're right, and like I, I, I feel like there's not much more to say about it at the moment, except you know, I mean, apart from you know, his reason, you know, five thousand and one for 
for why these companies need a better ethical oversight and better oversight of how they're employing people. Um, but yeah, it's just, this is, you know, this problem is not going away. And I think as more and more of these stories come to light, thanks to people like Casey Newton, I think, you know, hopefully they get forced into doing something better about it. Yeah, watch this space because I think this is, um, mm. we could be leaning towards, well, some major legal shifts. And uh, I'm politely couching my terminology because I think, you know, we could actually see some big legal cases come out of this, especially in a litigious area like yeah. America. Yeah, completely. Moving on to something, well, uh, you know, when I when I suggested we talk about this, I thought of this as quite a nice, cheery little topic. It's something you and I used to talk about all the time back on the CNET podcast, the NBN. And the NBN is finally arriving in the regional New South Wales town of Walgett. And then while thinking of it, I thought, hang on, what do you mean it's finally arriving in Walgett? When you think NBN, where do you imagine the whole process is I know you're on the NBN, I'm on the NBN, most of the people I know are. Do you kind of imagine it as kind of, I don't know, most of the country by now? Yeah, and more importantly, I mean, the entire original concept was that it was going to level the playing field and that it felt like regional Australia was going to get it first because that was where it was needed most. It was So the fact that here we are in 2020... And yeah, it's like, oh, this was a hard place to put it. It's like, and that's why it should have been one of the first places to put it. So Dubbo, as I think we've talked about before, where where I live at the moment, was a really unusual case because a whole bunch of the NBN got put into place before the coalition got elected. So we actually have yeah. half of the town with what could be best termed as the Labor NBN and then a whole bunch of the town with the coalition NBN. And within town, and it's not spoken about a huge amount, but there is really a sense of it's the haves and the haves not. And if you've got fibre to the home, then you're in the labour part. And if you've got fibre to the node, you're in the coalition part. And it actually has an impact on house pricing, has an impact on where people look to rent. It has a very big deal in town. And, um, uh, you know, I think... Back in Sydney, where I was living for so long, uh, we just assumed it was coming at some point. It wasn't a big deal and, you know, it was would have been nice to have, but it was just that slow rollout. Walgett's needed something like this for a while. And look, the good news is, I should say, that 85% of the whole electorate that Walgett's in, which is the electorate of parks, is now complete with the NBN. That's still 15% of people coming. And I might say that the um, the member for Parks is also the Minister for Regional Communications. This is Mark Colton. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's really, because, I mean, the horrible thing about this is it's such a, you know, a what-if type scenario where, of course, you know, uh, the coalition can always claim it's like, oh, yeah, but you still got it sooner than it would have been if the other guys, because remember, we told you how bad theirs was going. Um, of course, the fact that when you do have split towns like um, like Dubbo, you know, where there is such a clear division in the quality of what some people have got and the reliability of what some people have got, you know, even some of those questions around, you know, if you got one of the good ones with battery backup on your fibre to the home, that means that... You know, that'll keep working if your street gets flooded. You know, it's like it'll work well, you know, unless the box on the outside of the wall and everything is gone. <laughs> but 
but you know, in sort of some of these issues of, well, you know, everything being node based means, you know, that last mile copper is still susceptible to all the issues that the old phone lines were susceptible to. And unlike, you know, the old days of a copper telephone, it would still work if the power's out because it's powered over the copper. It's like, that's not how internet works. So your phone is dead either way. All these kinds of issues that, that I've noticed people locally have started to notice, you know, off the back of kind of the, the fire season we've just had. Um, you know, there's all these kinds of things that people suddenly go, ah, oh, this isn't all that fit for, for emergencies and, you know, all those different issues of was this really built with the future in mind? And we haven't even touched on the fact that so many people who I talk to as part of my day job are, are on satellite internet still, whether it be SkyMaster or similar. And, and there are still major issues around that. They're getting that connectivity, but only now are pricing structures starting to take into account that they will go over their allotted data. They will because it is just such a tiny amount. Um, yeah. Just, and I know, mean, right. I mean, when the complaint usually coming from the head of the MBN and from, you know, coalition people is that, you know, oh, like, well, yeah, sorry, people people are using more than we expected. You're like, um, well, then you really weren't expecting reality to, to ever kick in, were you? You know, you're making up numbers to suit your version of what the future was going to be. Of course, people are going to use more when their internet suddenly is capable of doing more. Well, of course they are. They're going to desperately want that. Um, and, you know, I think the other interesting angle on this is is what 5G is going to end up meaning outside of metro areas, which we're still really trying to discover. Yeah. And look, yeah, just a quick nod to, um, I actually had a chat with Harvey Wright, who is the head of 5G at Optus last week. I remember we kind of had a bit of a go at them over the Olympics rights, going, <laughs> you know, 4K Olympics only on Optus at home 5G type stuff. Um, but you know, we had a chat about that and a whole bunch of other things. I'm going to actually run that on the Jetpacks podcast later this week. Um, but it was actually really great to sort of, you know, really dig into some of the sort of nitty gritty of how they sort of see it all working. And I mean, he actually, I, you know, said, so how caps and things working on 5G when it comes to the fact that, you know, you could burn through almost any sized cap in, you know, a minute um, based on the speeds that you might be able to get through that. And he actually said that, yeah, that everything that they're selling on 5G right now has, you know, it's unlimited because they just think that should be the version of the future that we're heading towards, which is if you, yeah, get like a, you know, a installed at home 5g plan and obviously it's limited where you can get that at the moment but they see it as totally the kind of thing that should just be you have high speed internet now and it's 5g and go for it well look it should be and you know you and i've spoken many many times about how in particular mobile internet needs a massive shake up when it comes to pricing structures uh, a lot of that has started to come through i note that when i changed account recently um, uh, it is now shaped rather than sort of any particular issues about getting yeah. additional fees i'm kind of comfortable with that to a degree yeah and you know when you're talking about 5g being you know sort of you know at its maximums like gigabit type speeds um yeah, if you're getting shaped to, you know, 10 megabit or something, like I, I have no idea. I've not checked what the plans are doing, but it's like, you know, that would be a perfectly serviceable way to go, oh, I've got a few days left in the month and I'll just, you know, have my still quite high speed but reliable thing working, you know, whatever that might be. But, it was, yeah, it was a really good chat to kind of 
get a good, a better perspective on how they're trying to push it out there, you know, how they're planning on trying to sell it and position it. Um, and just the technical challenge of, yeah, trying to, you know, move the network over to new tech because it's, you know, yeah, it's a pretty huge thing. And particularly in a big country like Australia, you know, it's, it's a tough job. <laughs> Look, as in a complete aside and to absolutely throw this one on you because we did not discuss it, I was going to mention this. I also had a chat to Optus recently, a very different chat. I spoke to the regional general manager, Tom O'Day, without realizing who he was. The poor guy had managed to get stuck in flood water and had to spend the night overnight in his car trying to get from Yass to Mendoran uh, oh. around my area when the floods came through. He was in town. They were heading up to Coonabarabran um, to talk about uh, Optus supporting a text counselling service that is being aimed at regional and remote people being able to access uh, mental health support services all via text. But um, uh, Tom had um, messaged us a few photos on the ABC Facebook page and a couple of videos of him on what <laughs> was once a hill and was now an island. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and luckily he got out the next day. But um, he was very sanguine about his experience. I'll give him that. <laughs> Oh, no, that's great. Look, I, I know we're running out of time. I do just want to have a quick shout out to an amazing story that popped up on the internet uh, last week. Uh, a guy who decided to do a bit of a, you know, performance art experiment with Google Maps. Uh, I don't know if, you know, lots of people I think don't realize how the GPS traffic data works on Google Maps in particular. So, you know, lots of different services will use things like, you know, they'll pull official data from official sources, all that kind of thing. But one of the main ways Google gets its mapping data is by the fact that so many people use Google Maps that they're able to kind of watch the movement of phones in cars and get a sense of the speed that they're moving at and therefore where there are or are not traffic jams, um, which is, you know, again, a good real-time system based on the vast usage of Google Maps. Um, but this one guy basically got a bunch of cheap old Android phones, 99 of them apparently, and put them into like a little kind of dinky toy, uh, you know, pull trolley cart that a kid might walk around with in the old days. <laughs> and he just walked up and down some streets slowly with 99 phones with Google Maps open, um, creating virtual traffic jams. <laughs> that Google then was deciding it should probably route around because, wow, there's a serious traffic jam on that random street in the middle of a town in America. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And if it's not a major plot point in the next Ocean's 15 oh. movie or something like that, I don't know <laughs> what to do with myself. Uh, but it shows these weird vulnerabilities in systems like this um, that you know, quite literally someone with a red pull cart could change someone else's day significantly. Yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, credit to Google that they released a statement basically saying, you know, well done. We love it. We're actually using some of the information we've now gathered from this incident to think about how we should, uh, better, you know, better observe this information in a way that helps us to notice if it's, you know, a false positive or not. So it's kind of nice that they've responded not by going, how dare he? We're going to change the terms of service so you can't. <laughs> Blah, blah. You know, they've just gone, well played, buddy. And we're actually going to, yeah, use this as a learning uh, moment and, <laughs> and try to 
try to stop people from doing that in future because I can totally imagine as well after that story comes out that other people have started thinking about now, how could I really mess with a city by using this uh, as a little bit more of a weapon and less of a... Uh, a creative arts project. Oh, it's 100% watchdogs. I absolutely love every second of it. It's <laughs> yeah. clever, clever, clever. And at the end of the day, it wasn't a particularly sophisticated hack. It no. was just time consuming, I imagine, dragging yeah. 100 phones, turning 100 phones on to be time consuming enough. <laughs> I don't know Making why. Making sure they're all charged enough that they actually all stay on by the time you get to the last one. <laughs> oh, that poor boy's power bill. Um, I don't know why it's reminding me of this, but years and years ago, someone very cleverly put together what he was terming as the anti-social map network, which would um, feed into all of the people, you know, back in the day with Foursquare and Twitter and all the location data that people on your friends list were um, uh, putting out there. It would chart you a map that would avoid every single person you knew. <laughs> it was the anti-social network map so that you could walk wherever you needed to go without having the indignity of bumping into someone. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Like, yeah, so Foursquare says that there's a friend in that cafe, so go to another cafe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or just turn left now. Turn left now. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> Look, we should wrap up soon, but um, we are recording this on a Tuesday, and Seamus, did you know that today is Safer Internet Day. I did. And I only <laughs> discovered it was Safer Internet Day today because people on Twitter told me it was. Um, and it's one of those, of course, there's a day for everything. I believe it's also uh, a women's day of some kind. Either that was, maybe that was yesterday in America. Yeah. And so I'm seeing tweets about it today, but it's that annoying thing where you go, this is actually a really good idea for a day and helping people to sort of think about these things. I wish I'd realized it was that sooner so I could have written a story on Biteside with some tips for people to be safer on the internet. It would have been really nice, but um, it's just an interesting one because obviously, you know, this particular one is angled at kids. What, what do you try and talk, being so tech-savvy as you are, what do you talk to your two about when it comes to online safety? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we... We talk about it a lot. Um, I know I like, I'll just give a quick shout out to Julie Inman at the eSafety. Um, I can't remember what the full name of it, eSafety board. Well, she, is, but she is the eSafety commissioner from memory of Australia. Yeah. Julie Inman Grant. That's mm. right, isn't it? Um, and cause actually they, they've got some really good tip stuff up online. I like, I really like the resources that they've started to build. I think it's a, you know, it's great when you sort of see an agency like that. Put together stuff that isn't isn't utterly wowserish. It does point out some of the you know extreme possibilities to help people understand these things are possible and they are going on out there. Um, but it sort of you know really tries to strike that balance of the value of digital stuff as well. So I think that stuff is important. But it's funny, Sally and I have actually been working on putting together like a flyer. And that's partly where I was like, oh, man, it would have been great if I was able to put a PDF up on, like, Byteside today for people to download. Um, but we've been trying to think through what are the things that we wish other parents would actually, um, yeah, better understand about how to sort of work with their kids um, to create some of this stuff. The biggest, the biggest rule in our house, and, like, it totally seems like, you know, police state kind of crap, but it is just simply no devices in bedrooms. It's... You know, of course, when they're older, you know, that's not going to be a thing. But we just feel like keeping tech to common spaces is one of the easiest ways that we can just always be in touch with what they're up to, who they're talking to, 
what they're doing. Like we give them, you know, we're not standing there looking over their shoulder. So, you know, they feel comfortable just getting online and chatting with friends and playing games with friends and all that. But they're not in sort of that zone where they might sort of, you know, feel like doing a bit of added risk taking at a slightly too young age that then means they feel nervous about talking to us. And I mean, right, there's number two right there that we always say, if you ever feel uncomfortable about something, if you are worrying about whether or not you should tell us something, that's probably the time to tell us something happened. And we will never, you know, shout you down or abuse you for telling us about something that you're worried about or that, you know, you feel like uh, you've made a mistake, you've done something, and now it's feeling like something bad is happening or going to happen. So that's exactly the time to tell us about it. And trying to just create that open space to talk about things is probably the biggest thing that we keep trying to emphasize. Who would have thought that teaching kids about open communication would give them an insight into how to use a communication tool openly? Just wild to me. <laughs> uh, it is International Day of Women and Girls in Science today as well. Which, right. I, which I'd known about quite significantly some time ago. <laughs> uh, the funny thing with online safety, just to throw this out right before we go, is, of course, we, we tend to focus on kids, but I'm more worried, from my perspective, for the scams that are targeting older members of Australia um, or people who are less tech-savvy because they are out there and they are getting wild. We had a recent one in our area, hay fraud, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but this guy scammed thousands upon thousands of dollars out of farmers who were already doing it really hard under the drought uh, using online social media to pretend to be selling really quite cheap hay. Um, and they were caught up. And what the police been saying is that they are worried that it was a far more significant and people were too embarrassed to come forward. Yeah. I like, that's it. With all this stuff, the reporting around it, people really do sort of, you know, they, yeah, more and more law enforcement is always like, these are the ones we've heard about. And there could be so much more out there. I mean, I actually saw some stats just earlier that leap back to mind on like um, romance scams that start through online games like Words with Friends. Yes. A apparently that's hit like, you know, half a million dollars here in apparently Australia has been scammed by people trying to sort of, you know, open the door and create these kinds of relationship things through just these open access online games that people are playing together um, by that random matchmaking system that can happen. So it's like, yeah, there's so much of this stuff that you're right, like, Everybody needs to be a little bit more careful of um, when they're hanging out online. And everyone needs to be able to say, hey, I think something's gone wrong here and feel like they're not going to get attacked for it as well. Yeah, having someone you can turn to and go, or oh, does this thing seem right to you? Yeah, seems would a bit be really good to me. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think we should wrap it up there because this has been, <laughs> I have to, it's been a good show and I feel like. We're, yeah, we're almost at an hour, so it's time to get out of here. <laughs> it's time to get out of here, Seamus Burn. Thank you again, Nick, for hanging out remotely right. via the magic of the internet. I guess technically via the MBN because I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose we are too here. Yeah, technically. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, yeah, you know, we can be in Dubbo and Barrel and have a very clear, <laughs> clear conversation where I've had people actually sometimes ask, are you guys like, how do you catch up? It's not because the internet. <laughs> because the internet. <laughs>
Um, you can, of course, catch all of our stuff, uh, Twitter at Byteside, Instagram at The Byteside. I'm going to try to post more pictures there soon. Um, and all sorts of other places, of course, Byteside.com. You can find all the shows. I just put up a really awesome conversation with Genevieve Bell on the new Uplink podcast. She is such a delight to talk to. Um, you know, it's both amusing and deep, deep, deep conversations about the ethics of AI in society. So, oh. um, well worth uh, tuning into. And Nick, where can people find you? You can find me at Dr. Nick on Twitter, which is dr underscore nic. Track me now on Facebook as well. I'm pretty easy to find. And a big shout out to Jen Bell as well, who once gave me a particularly nice bottle of bourbon when I was at an Intel Developers Forum in San Francisco because <laughs> she said she wasn't allowed to take it back with her. So thanks, Jen. It was delicious. Nice. Uh, take care, everybody, and we will see you next time on Bite Side. Beep.